got Paul Oster here with us um, from Brooklyn, New York, uh, via phone. Paul, thanks so much for being on Living Writers today. Uh, happy to be there, <laughs> even though I'm not there, and but here. Your, your disembodied voice. Yes. <laughs> Which is what radio at its heart is all about. Right? True enough. True enough. Well, well, thanks so much. And I should say this is we're taping the show on uh, the 29th of October, 2010. And and Paul, your your latest novel is just out. Uh, from... Almost. Almost. Oh, oh, it's still not on the... Not till November 9th. I think that's the official date. Oh, wow. So this we're actually quite lucky to be getting to have a quick word with you before it comes out, too. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to say anything to anybody afterwards. <laughs> oh, this is the moment to do it. You know, I, I was talking with your, or emailing with James Meter, your publicist at Henry Holt Picador, and, and he was saying that you're talking with people in Brazil, um, all over this country, and internationally uh, right now. So, yeah, it's been a, been a busy time, I must say. Are you, are you taking honey for your throat? <laughs> uh, well, uh, no, I'm fine. I, I smoke cigars for my throat. That seems to help the best. Much better. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Paul, before we go any further, I'll just read your short bio from the back of Sunset Park, um, and, then, and then we'll go from there. How's that sound? Whatever you like. Okay, thank you. Okay, here we go. Paul Oster is the best-selling author of Invisible, Man in the Dark, The Book of Illusions, and the New York Trilogy, among many other works. In 2006, he was awarded the Prince of Asturias Prize for Literature and inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Among his other honors are the Independent Spirit Award for the screenplay of Smoke and the Prix Medicis Estranger for Leviathan, the French, you'll have to help me with, Paul, because actually... Pre Médicis. Pre Médicis. Pre Médicis. Yes. Étranger. Étranger. Yeah. Thank you. He has also been shortlisted for the International IMPAC Dublin Literary Award for the Book of Illusions, the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction for the Music of Chance, and the Edgar Award for City of Glass. His work has been translated into 41 languages. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. Paul, thanks so much, not only um, for being here today, but also helping me with the French. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> and, you're, and you are no stranger to French. It's so near and dear to your heart because after, um, after graduating for, from Columbia, you went to Paris. Uh, Sometime after, that's true. That's true, and I lived there for about three and a half years in France, two and a half in Paris, one year in the country, where I was the caretaker of a farmhouse. Oh, that must have been, that, do you, have you ever been back to that farmhouse? Uh, no, to tell you the truth, not since then. And that was 1973, four, a long time ago. Ah, uh, but the, the, the work that you did over there, you, you, the translating of, of French poetry, uh, that's sort of, that's what you began to do when you got back to the States. Wasn't well, that was how I, um, I, you know, I was writing poetry as a young person, and all through my 20s, that's, that's what I did. And I published a number of books, um, and I was also translating French poets, um, but that's uh, an act of love. But in order to earn my meager living, I was translating prose books as well. Uh, none of any great distinction, except one or two were interesting. There was a book by Sartre that I did, and I think
think there was a Simenon novel as well. And and those, but your books of poems, um, let's see, there's Spokes, Facing the Music, White Spaces. Um, these these were all published in the States. Uh, and um, I actually was hoping to read some of your poetry, and I found White Nights online. Uh-huh. So, Good. So, well, that, all the poems have been, uh, they're in print, uh, again, because uh, uh, Collected Poems was published a few years ago here in New York by Overlooked Press. So everything I wanted to keep is in that volume. And all, all the work is from the 70s. What was it like when you were going through and putting that, the Collected together, Paul? What, was it like revisiting those, those chunks of your, yourself from that time? No, I, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I still feel, feel very attached to that work that I did then. And maybe the best stuff I ever did, in fact... Who knows? Uh, the, the poems from those times. What, and why is it because there's not any of the filters or the, um, the sort of a postmodern construction to no, it? Or? I, no, no. The poems are, I, I, I think they're, uh, many people find them quite daunting and difficult. <laughs> uh, but um, it's simply that uh, I did it, I did it, I did it. And then a moment came, I had a crisis, and I simply got stuck. And um, I went through about a year in which I didn't write anything uh, and felt that maybe I was finished as a writer. And then I got unblocked again, and it was prose. I was writing prose, and I've been writing prose ever since. And that, that was the invention of solitude, what you were writing, wasn't it? The, well, the that was the—that's uh, the first book. But I, I started writing some shorter prose things first. Uh, okay, and you know, I think it—I'm it, not sure, but maybe you had happened to talk about this in an interview with the Paris Review. Perhaps that moment, that transitional time. It's quite possible. I'm sure I must have mentioned it. It was a real turning point in my life. And for a whole year, this feeling of because of of like wondering who you are. Maybe yeah. what the new identity might be. Well, I was be. desperately broke at the time. Uh, my first marriage was falling to pieces. And this, uh, and this was with Lyd- the writer Lydia Davis, yes, Paul? Yes, yes, yes. We were kids together, and uh, oh. we got married, but it didn't last that long. Uh, but we were really struggling back in those days. And that's where your book, Hand to Mouth, those, the, those stories come from? Yeah, that's, um, that's my little, little book about money, or not having money. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, well, well I, I had the great luck to meet Lydia Davis when she came to Richard Hugo House in Seattle a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I remember her fondly. Um, I, I, another, I, I, I wanted to actually, a lot of your work is coincidence, Paul, um, isn't it? Like about like the sort of the like us being alive and um and if you're aware enough you'll see connections with things or or things out of your control completely um but this morning i actually realized um from your biography uh that you were born in newark new jersey and that you you i which i sort of remembered that you're a new jersey boy and then you you moved to new york and now you've become like this, uh, like the key to the city is yours in New York City. Um, but you grew up in South Orange. Yes. Um, 
and and my my father actually uh, did as well. And on our shelf at home, the bookshelf, um, there's the 1937 mirror of Columbia High School. Oh my goodness! Of, of South Orange and Maplewood. Yes. That's where I went to high school, <laughs> Columbia High School, class of 65. Oh, you're class of 65. Okay. Yes. I'm writing this next. Um, and so I just thought, this is exactly what Paul Oster is talking about. This is part of what you recognize in life and believe about it and write about are these moments of, um, like, just, and, and, and your... Uh, your quest for understanding and and uh, with about your your father and the idea of father and then that my father actually went to the same high well, school. Well, I have something interesting <laughs> to tell you about that because um, uh, a few years ago I was asked back to my old high school. I was inducted into the Columbia High School Hall of Fame, Woo-hoo! and um, so I got a list of uh, the uh, other members, the previous people. One of them was. Teresa Wright, the actress who graduated from Columbia High School in 1938, which means that your father was in school with her. And Teresa Wright is someone who pops up prominently in this new novel that, I've, uh, that I'm publishing now, Sunset Park, Yes, for her role in The Best Years of Our Lives, a what? great film from 1946. So oh. see, everything connects. Everything does. Con- I'm a believer now, too, Paul Oster. <laughs> That's incredible because I think I was Myrna Loy. The name Myrna Loy overshadowed. Um, I think that's what caught my attention because she's also in uh, the best years. Uh, Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Well, we won't sing It's a Small World now. No, no, we don't say things like that. (laughs) But but you're uh, so so this is to add to the many awards that you've garnered throughout your career now being part of the the Hall of Fame at Columbia High School. Yes, it's a great <laughs> honor, and I, I'm really happy about it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> that, that, that is lovely. And, and so, uh, Paul, let's talk a little bit about Sunset Park, um, because the, the film, uh, the, the Best Years of Our Lives, that, that is one of the threads that's woven throughout the entire novel and and it's it's interesting because it's talking about the return of world war ii veterans in the the film is about that and how they they're discovering their lives changed Uh, and and this seems to mirror your your main character of miles heller um within sunset park and what he's coping with well i think in a sense um well there's a lot to be said about all this but to begin with uh Sunset Park is a book that takes place now. I mean, it is a book of the moment. Yes. Um, the action, most of the action, stretches from the fall of 2008 to the spring of 2009. So it's, it's today, uh, just as the economic crisis is hitting. And, uh, but at the same time, it's about uh, three different generations really, uh, the, the young people of today, and by young I mean people in their 20s, their late 20s, and then the generation of their parents, uh, people roughly my age, 60, 60-something, but also the parents of the parents, the grandparents, the World War II generation. So the film is partly about that earlier group, but um, we have 
quite a bit of information about Miles's father's mother and father as well. Yes, and why and why was it important for you to to span um, across so much of so much time? Uh, I can never answer why. I have no <laughs> idea. I mean, the, the, these books that I write, they impose themselves on me, and uh, I go where they take me, and this is where this one took me. And, and was there a moment where you actually had to to learn in your way of working that you, you had to trust that? You have to. Uh, otherwise, you can't write. You, you, can't, you can't do it. You have to be very open to everything. Let your mind just um, wander and... It's it's like a, a magnet, you know. You pick up things as you go along, little filings from, from the past, from the present, even from the future. Sometimes, uh, I I I think uh, writing novels is one of the great emotional and intellectual adventures one can participate in. It ain't science, I'll tell you, and uh, I really don't know what I'm doing most of the time, um, on the deepest level. Yes, I know how to put a sentence together. I know what a paragraph is. I know how to tell a story. But why I'm doing it is a great mystery to me. Well, you mentioned that also that it's it was a way it was a way back to writing and it was also a way towards some bread and butter. <laughs> so so though those it seems like you are going you're a, a a man who would write no matter what. <laughs> well, uh Certainly, I've, I've never written for money. The one, well, once I did. I mean, the, this period when I was stuck and didn't write any poems, couldn't write any poems, that was the year when I wrote um, a detective novel under another name, which I did in some very short period, I don't know, two months maybe. Yes, Squeeze Play. Squeeze Play, yes, by Paul Benjamin. My, the, your my middle name. name. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that was the only time I ever tried to do it, and I wound up making a grand total of $900 for writing that book. So I can't say that uh, it's a good idea to try to write for money. I don't even know how you'd go about it. No. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like you'd be able to do, be open, that one quality that you said that's what you have to be, um, in order to see where it's going to go. Yeah. Well... The thing that proved to me uh, that I had to do this uh, as a novelist was when I finished the first one, uh, uh, which is the first volume of the New York Trilogy, City of Glass, that book was rejected by, I think it was 17 publishers. Are you, are you kidding? I mean, I, it took a long, long time. And in the meantime, I was writing the second book, and I think I was into the third volume by the time... The first one was published, oh, or had been accepted for publication. And it proved to me that I was going to write no matter what, even if I couldn't get published. That, and, and that also makes sense why they were so closely linked, because uh, it came out, right? It was pub the, the City of Glass, was it 85, eight, Yeah, but it was, uh, it was then, written in 81, 82. And it took that, it took that long to find its, its yeah, home. Yeah, I think the, sec the second was 83, and the third was 84, and, but the first one didn't come out till 85. Oh, but I, well, I love that story. And I think it also gives every, 
every writer out there a little bit of hope too and when were you so can can you tell us when you were writing the ghosts um because if you said like because the city of glass is the first one yes and then ghosts and then the locked room right so were you also working a day job at that point and then writing in the evenings or how were you um biding the time until the city of glass someone was finally brilliant enough to recognize it (laughs) what was i doing i was uh well, I was still translating a bit, and I was teaching a bit as well. Uh, not bringing in much money, but enough to, enough to breathe. And, and were you teaching writing? Yes, alas, I was. <laughs> was that composition? No, it was so-called creative writing. Oh, <laughs> Wait, that's great. The so-called, did you actually title your class that? <laughs> uh, so-called creative writing. I don't writing. know what the class was called. It was probably just called fiction writing or something like that. Oh, and was it part of a, was it at a university, Paul? Yes, or was it, I was, one... uh, uh, it was at Long Island University, LIU, which is right here in Brooklyn. It's a kind of dumpy little uh, impoverished college um, with a lot of struggling immigrants who were very moving people. Really, I, I, I loved being with those kids. And then after that, um, the next year I got a job at Princeton and I did that for about five years. So I was going back and forth between New York and Princeton a couple times a week. And, uh, and then I stopped, and I haven't taught since. Gosh, the last time I taught was probably over 20 years ago. And, and for that, do you, well, do, you, do you miss it, or is it something where... I, no, no, I, I, I left as soon as I could. That's what I thought from the beginning part of your... Yes. <laughs> we first started to talk about it. And, you know, if you ever wanted to go and talk with classes, um, come come on here to <laughs> the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. I'd love you come to my class, talk to me. Well, <laughs> I've done it. I've been out there. Uh, I don't know when it was. It must be about 15 years ago. But I, I did talk to some classes, and... I had a very nice time. I enjoyed being there. And and maybe it's time. So maybe it is time to come back. Maybe you know, so. Every 15 years or so. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, well, well, Paul, you had also, let's, let's take a short break and then, and then we'll come back um, and talk more with Paul Oster, um, who's speaking with us from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, today we're talking about his latest, the novel soon to be released in, in November, Sunset Park, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Paul Oster joins us um, from Brooklyn, New York. Paul, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you um, for having me. <laughs> well, it's, it's an honor. Let me say that. Um, so, Paul, were you able to hear the, the, the piece of the song that we played yes, during the break? Yes, I could hear it. It's, it's a demo that was done uh, oh, uh, two or three years ago. Uh, of a song that uh, my daughter wrote and performed, Sophie Oster. And now that she's finished college, she's back in the groove and uh, working uh, very hard on, on uh, getting a new album together. So stay tuned for more music from Sophie Oster. Then. Yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, well, lovely. Um, well, maybe later in the program we'll also... Um, Maybe we'll have a like a, a baseball anthem or something. So, um, <laughs> because that's one I I love how you say that um, that you're open and to where where things are going, the story, the characters are going to take you, Paul. And I notice though that there are um, as if you're a, a composer, um, and this is your composition across a lifetime of words so far, there's, there's the notes that you return to, or at least that resurface. Um, and, and one of those are, are including base, baseball moments, um, uh, you know, from American series or, or famous baseball players or, or baseball players who have, um, you know, been, been hit in the eye with a baseball. Or, um. <laughs> well, that's in the new book. Uh, see, as I was uh, preparing to write Sunset Park, all kinds of things were happening in the world. Among them were the, uh, the deaths of three baseball players. Uh, Herb Score, who was a uh, great young pitcher for the Cleveland Indians in the 50s. Um, he only had two seasons, splendid seasons, and then he was injured badly when a, a batted ball hit him in the eye, uh, which ruined his career. He died in November then in, 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 uh, of 08, and then in the spring of 09, uh, Mark Fidrich was killed, uh, the bird uh, from the Detroit Tigers who had that wonderful season in 1976. Um, he was only 54. He was working on a truck on his farm in Massachusetts. It collapsed on him and he oh. crushed. And then finally, a very interesting character named Jack Lorkey, but who had the nickname of Lucky. So he was Lucky Lorkey, uh, <laughs> who, um, who, as I describe in the book, had three near-death experiences and walked out of each one of them unscathed. And so that's how he got his nickname. And he played on the Giants and the Phillies back in the early 50s. And um, so these, these three are, are, part of, are part of the story. Some other pitchers as well. And those are the main ones, and it and it's and you use their stories to 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 deepen the relationship between Miles and his, and his his father, um, Morris, uh, as well, and 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 how they, because right, Pollock, uh, Morris is teaching young Miles how to play baseball, and he's he's yes, quite good he, at it. He and, learned from his father. You see, the grandfather was the great one, and. Um, and also injured. Also injured, and then and then, Morris uh, Miles's father was never much of a player, but he teaches the young Miles when he's a you know a boy uh, 
the lessons that his own father had taught him. And Miles becomes quite a good pitcher when he's young. And then, and then when he, when the the tragedy that changes all their lives occurs, as soon after that, he he doesn't think that he has the right to continue doing something he loves, the pitching. Well, at least that's Mars's interpretation. Um, Miles never says that. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And which is interesting because that brings us to another. Uh, a component of the book where it's the the multiple narrators where you're you you shift um between the voices telling the story well actually it's all written in the third person so there's only one narrator who's me oh okay uh, yes the third okay. person but i shift uh points of view yes. so I, I i move around from one character to another and there, there are quite a few characters in the book of significance and I know this is nothing uh, revolutionary. I mean, novelists have been doing this forever, but it's the first time I've ever done that. So I found it very energizing and interesting. And how did that happen? Was it some organic um, thing that occurred where you suddenly felt like the points of view um, that... The well, again, this divide? is how the book came to me. I, I saw it as a, a book of, of uh, fragments that uh, all connect somehow. And... Uh, so by moving from one to the other, uh, giving different perspective on scenes, on, or even on the same scene from different points of view, um, it seemed to uh, make the story richer for me. Yes, and it, and it reminded me, actually, um, and thank you for pointing out that it was indeed points of view. That's what I meant. Yes, I know you <laughs> did. You're um, a smart girl, I know that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Very kind of you to say, um, with the with the dopey moments for sure. Um, Join but, the club. <laughs> um, but but it also it reminded me like the different um, the perspectives of and I know this might be too much of a leap and it might just be a coincidence of my own reading. But I was reading your New York, New York tri- trilogy back when I was first reading the Lawrence Durrell's The Quartet. Uh huh. And so it, reading Sunset Park then reminded me how you only learned different aspects of what was happening, at least the reality for an individual character, much later on with Darrell's quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly <laughs> with Sunset Park, um, that same feeling where you, you don't, you th- it's, it's, that's the one way of showing um, that, that we don't, uh, what we're trying to grapple with is to to shape our own reality and be in it, but it's it's. It's funny that you should mention Durrell because um, he and I corresponded uh, late in his life. He was reading my books and he he liked them very much. He wrote me some beautiful letters that meant a lot to me. I have to say. And and when was that, Paul? Oh, that was back in the eighties. So so that would be when you were really beginning fiction with fervor. Well, that's true. Uh, but I mean, I, because of the, the length of um, uh, <laughs> the, the delay between writing and publishing, I, I had, you know, quite a few books were stacking up. So I published quite a few books rapidly um, because after the trilogy, uh, there was the In the Country of Last Things and then Moon Palace. And all those books came out within about, those five books within about four years of one another. So those are the books that Darrell was reading. 
I, and and he and he was then much older than yeah yeah he was an old man living in France and I, I never met him but um, we, we we corresponded for a while and then he got too ill to continue and and there's something about um, a correspondence of, of of letters that's very intimate in a in a different way especially about ideas isn't isn't it Paul. Well, I I, uh, I I enjoy writing to people I care about. Um, so, yes, it's a dying art, I suppose, letter writing, but I persist. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess, you know, thinking about multiple points of view, I, I take it back. I did it once before, but not in a novel, but in the film Smoke, which <gasps> I don't know if you've seen it. I have. You have? Yes, well, I've loved we, it. <laughs> we're bouncing from one to the other, and each... Uh, section of the film has a title, the title of one of the characters, yes. which is similar to the way Sunset Park works. And, you know, I'm so stupid, I didn't even think of it until, until much later uh, when I had finished Sunset Park. Oh, I had done something similar once before. And I, I wonder if it was something about something in the story that made it the best, you know, those multiple perspectives the best vehicle for the story because it, it has been a while since i've seen smoke paul so i yeah well it came out uh, my god is 15 years ago now <laughs> so I, uh, if your memory's a little dim I, I i i i know why i loved blue in the face too yes that was the little companion movie we made right after <laughs> with with harvey keitel s- still right yes he was in both of the films yes yes it was improvised film which we shot in six days. I, I can't believe we did that. Six days? I, yes, I don't know how we did it. Uh, it's completely wild. Um, uh, I know there, there are people who loved it, and then there were people who hated it so much. I remember one of the reviews by that genius of film criticism, Rex Reed, <laughs> said it was the worst film ever made. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of an honor in a way. Exactly. Then you've know you know you've done something right. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean the very worst. I mean this is you know quite an accomplishment. <laughs> There's a little shout out for Rex Reed there. <laughs> um how how much of that was scripted, Paul? Because it seemed like it seemed like just a lot it seemed like a lot of fun. Somehow. It was. I'll tell you how we did it. Uh because it's it's more fun to talk about movies than books, so oh, no. <laughs> I can tell you that we um, we were filming Smoke, and by we I mean Wayne Wang and myself, and we were co-filmmakers on the, on the first film. And um, uh, Wayne got the idea while we were rehearsing, actually before we started filming, while we were rehearsing with some of the actors to do improvisations, and some of the stuff that people was, were doing was so funny that uh, Wayne had the idea, let's make another movie right after Smoke. We'll go back into the cigar store, which was our main set, and turn on the cameras and see what happens. And it developed from there. And so I plotted out um, a number of situations, which I wrote out and gave to the actors. There was suggested dialogue that they could use or not use as they chose. And we originally had only three days to film. And so we did those first three days immediately after Smoke was done. I mean, we finished on a Friday, and then we started the next movie on Monday, which is 
again, <laughs> crazy, in the broiling July heat of New York City. It, I, I it must have been 280 <laughs> degrees out. I remember people looked a bit warm, a bit sort yes, of sweaty. A bit. It was <laughs> excruciatingly hot. Uh, so we, we filmed those first three days, and then um, we put the movie aside, and we were concentrating on editing Smoke. But by, I don't know, mid to late October, we had some kind of rough cut, and we showed it to the producers, uh, Miramax, Harvey Weinstein and his brother Bob, and um, they liked it very much. Uh, but they said, boys, good job in three days, but think how much better it could be if you had three more days. So we said, yes, we agree, definitely. And uh, I remember running out of the office and going home and writing 10 or 15 scenes <laughs> in one day. I, I, I just sat and wrote and then typed it all up, faxed it to everybody. And then we had to rebuild the cigar store. We had to hire new actors, do casting calls. And we had to get the whole thing going within eight days because Harvey Keitel was leaving the country to act in another movie. <laughs> and I, I've never worked so hard, so intently in all my life. And we managed to do it. And so, but we didn't film the second half until uh, it was the last days of October. And uh, we were lucky the weather held, and it, and it was sunny, and it looked summer-like enough so that it would match up with the other parts of the film. Yeah. I remember we finished on Halloween, actually. So right about now. Yeah, right about <laughs> now. It was 1994, so 16 years ago. And the beautiful thing about it was uh, we were filming in this fake candy cigar store on a corner in Brooklyn, but it looked like a real place. And uh, we had finished shooting the last scene. We opened the door, and it was evening. And all the kids in the neighborhood were walking around in their costumes. So we invited them in. And they took all the candy in the store for their Halloween treats. It was a wonderful, wonderful Brooklyn moment, I have to say. And another wonderful moment of accident. Yes, well, you know, things happen the way they happen. But that was particularly fortuitous, I think. Yes, it's <laughs> well. Well, thank you for. <laughs> yeah, I wish we had some candy right now, Paul. <laughs> uh, well, you were drinking Coke before. Maybe, yeah, but... <laughs> maybe you have a candy bar somewhere nearby. Maybe <laughs> you're right. Actually, there is um, at the station. You are very astute. Now I see why you wrote the the New York trilogy with yeah. the detective. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and Paul, it actually reminds me of also the the um, the nonfiction piece because you were we were talking earlier about you know well what why you know why write and you actually titled um, a piece. Yes, what? a little sequence of true stories. Um, I, I I I I did I don't know three three or four actually four little sequences of true stories. Um, this was all in the nineties. And it came out as a little book from New Directions called uh, The Red Notebook. And in a way, I, I think of those stories as my Ars Poetica. Yes. But without any theory, you <laughs> see. I'm telling uh, of my experience of the world through stories, and a uh, reader can draw his or her own conclusions. But And that's the poet in you. Well, it's just simply uh, trying to... Uh, uh, demonstrate how unpredictable and strange life is. And and um, 
And it does. I think. <laughs> um, and sometimes uh, w- there's Willie Mays uh, makes a cameo at the end. Um, yes, of that particular piece, Why Write, that's true. And, and, that, and that's the part where you say, you know, you, you, would, you were there, you, you waited for him after a game. No, we weren't waiting. It was, I was eight years old. Let's get the context. Oh, uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes, I, it was 1955 uh, in New York at the Polo Grounds. Ah, yes. It was the first baseball game I, I had ever been taken to, major league game, and it was a night game. And um, uh, the Polo Grounds had a very odd uh, uh, configuration, and the clubhouses for the players were not behind the dugouts as they are in all the other stadiums in the world, but they were in a like a little house in center field, in the wall in center field. And I remember we left the stadium by walking. Uh, uh, across the field and into the outfield, and there was a gate open under the clubhouse, and who should be standing there when we got there was Willie Mays in his street clothes. <laughs> and he, he, of course, had become legendary the previous October for the famous catch in the 54 World Series. Yes. He was about 24 years old. He was just a baby. Um, and I remember walking up to him and saying, uh, Mr. Mays, Mr. I couldn't call him Willie. Mr. Mays, can I have your autograph, please? And he said, sure, kid, sure. You got a pencil? And I didn't have a pencil. And my father didn't have a pencil. And my mother didn't have a pencil. And their friends didn't have a pencil. And Willie Mays looked at me and he said, well, sorry, kid. Ain't got no pencil. Can't give no autograph. And then he walked away. Oh, I was so oh. disappointed. I can't tell you. Um, so after that day, I, I started carrying a pencil around in my pocket and, uh, or a pen, which I still do now. And, and I, as I jokingly finished the piece, I say that's how I explain to my children how I became a writer <laughs> because of Willie Mays. Now, there's a postscript to this story, if you want to hear it, Yes. which I find very moving. Uh, one of the other pieces in... The Red Notebook. Uh, I think it's another section called Accident Report. I, I wrote a story. Uh, it was actually something Wayne Wang had told me about a friend of his, Amy Tan, the writer. Oh, yes. yes. And so I wrote the story. I just called her A. I didn't give her name. And I, I've met Amy a few times over the years. We're not close friends, but you know, warm acquaintances. And we wound up a couple of years ago at... Um, a, a writer's festival in Key West, Florida, a uh, wonderful place to go in the winter. And all of our books were for sale, all the writers there. And I realized I had never given Amy the story that I had written about her. Oh. So I bought the book, gave it to her, and she read it on the plane home to San Francisco. Well, it turns out that two of her very best friends are Willie Mays' next-door neighbors. Oh. And she called him up. When she got home and she said, go out and buy Paul's book, go ring Willie's door, go inside and read him the story. And they did it. And uh, apparently, Willie Mays was so moved. He just sat there shaking his head with tears in his eyes. And he, and he kept repeating over and over, 52 years ago, 52 years ago. And um, he signed a baseball for me gave it to them, they gave it to Amy, and Amy gave it to me. So I, I have Willie Mays' autograph now, if you can believe it. 
<laughs> Paul Oster, I feel like that's amazing. It was wonderful, just wonderful. And and how old were you? So it was. So, so I was so sixty you, years old. Because you have. Amy you gave been, me the ball for my sixtieth birthday. Because you had been eight at the time. Oh, that's. <laughs> yes, I mean I didn't want Willie Mays's autograph anymore, of course, but I'm happy to have it, just because <laughs> it closes the story. Oh my gosh! Now have, uh, forgive me, but have you have you written that no, postscript? No, 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 no. I haven't gotten around to it. Oh. That is amazing. I'm actually sort of a little, well, I'm taken aback there, Paul, with that. Good. And, yeah. good. And to leave a radio person speechless, this is good. <laughs> you We could turn the show into a John Cage piece. You know, that's, Silence. So, that's so funny that you would. <laughs> They're actually doing, um, in early November, uh, a performance, I think it's once, of John Cage's, like some uh, composition here. Uh, so it's uh, funny that you say that. Well, he's a, he's a really interesting guy and a uh, wonderful writer. I don't know if you've read his books, but I, I, I thought they're... Some of his poems I've yeah. read, or, es- you know, the essays, the poems, those. Mm-hmm. But what, what do you, uh, what, what do you um, love about them, Paul? Well, you know, I haven't read it since I was uh, about... 19 years old, but there was a book called Silence, used to, to use that word again, that was filled with his, his, his ideas about what he was doing and what he thought the world was like, and uh, I remember finding it very, very engaging and intelligent. And you read that when you were about 19? Yeah, I think I was a freshman in college. I'm, I'm just writing, writing it back down here. Um, and well, Paul. Also, to the, another story in the Red Notebook was it literally? I, <laughs> this is one of the more simplistic questions I'll be throwing your way, right? Um, was it really in a Red Notebook? Was because I know you say you write in, you in longhand. In I notebooks. do. I write in notebooks, and I, I happen to be using a Red Notebook, uh, and that's why I called uh, that that those pieces the Red Notebook because. They were literally written in a red notebook. And were they more than those pieces, but you chose these to show, to, to put under the title, Why Write? Um, well, or, why, no, you see. Oh, first, wait, it's true stories. There, yeah, there are four, yeah. Sec, four uh, parts to this, the, 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 the book called The Red Notebook, True Stories. The first sequence is called The Red Notebook, and then there is Why Write, and then there's Accident, Accident Report, and then there's another... Thing, uh, another piece called It Don't Mean a Thing. <laughs> you know, remember that song? It don't yes. mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Um, so that that's the fourth piece. And and um, thank you for refreshing my memory there, <laughs> Paul. I actually should um, I should know that. Um, the uh, I wanted to to mention that there was that number three that section. Um, a little bit earlier, before you're eight, you bring us to a time when you were 14. Yes. And um, and this this particular um, story, this it's well story, your story um, is very. The others, while you were devastated as a child with Willie Mays and, and that transformed your life, this one transformed your life in a quite a different way. This this story. Um, Yes. You well, you know, all the, all the all the stories, the five stories in 
why write are all about children. I don't know if you noticed, but if you go back and look, you'll see they're all about children. Sometimes that child is myself, but not necessarily. Yes. Uh, but the middle piece, the longest of the five, and by far the most significant, is about that thing that happened when I was 14, which was, to be brief, um, taking a hike with about 20 other boys at a summer camp and getting caught in a very bad electrical storm. And uh, the, the boy next to me was struck and killed by lightning. And uh, I think if you experience something like that at that age, which is not infancy, obviously, but it's not, not adulthood either, you know, early adolescence, and you're so vulnerable to everything, uh, it makes an everlasting impact on how you think about the world. And I think it was then that I learned that, yes, anything can happen at any time, and you never know what's going to happen next. And you can be gone also, or some, something. You snap your fingers, and it's life and then death that quick. Uh, it's sort of a, it's it's sort of it's amazing how you how you um, construct the story too because you begin by setting the moment of that transitional time when yeah. you're neither child nor adult and, mm -hmm. and that trying to and and about identity like who struggling with that. But you really don't know who you are when you're 14. Um, aren't you trying on all different masks? I think, uh, and then physically you're changing so rapidly. It's a bit uh, perplexing. Uh, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you're not who you were last week. But it's still you. You're, ex you're expected to still be you. Yes, yes, you try to be you, but finally you don't really know who you are. It's true, and that, do that actually does keep happening as we get older, too, but at different um, there's stretches of time. And sometimes I think we can't see who we really are sometimes because we have those layers of memories of who we think yes. we are. Well, it's devastating when you look at photographs, you see. That's when you really see the, the time marching on. Um, and it's uh, every once in a while, someone will have a glimpse. Uh, I, my wife's mother is 87 now. Um, once caught a glimpse of herself a few years ago in, I think, a, the window of a store, and she didn't know who it was, and then she paused and looked again, and, said, and then she said, oh, so that's what I look like now. Oh, now I see. I didn't understand until now. Oh, because it's true, because, yes, I understand exactly, because we can't see ourselves until something allows us some uh, one of the layers comes away that's right. right that's right some kind of objectification or surprise is needed in order to jolt you into uh becoming aware of what what the real story is and we do that with those we love too don't don't you think um yes i mean i, I i've been married now to siri who spent for 30 years so she was uh in her mid-20s when we started living together. Now she's in her mid-50s. Uh, I still find her exquisitely beautiful, but she's certainly aged, just as I've aged. I can see pictures of us when we were first together and then what we look like now, and it's, it's really uh, apples and oranges. And yet, you know, we are who we were, just our bodies are falling apart. 
And it's some it's something about the eyes too, isn't it? Because I think if you're looking in someone's eyes, those are very much the same energy in them, or so. Uh, one would hope. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. One one sees a lot of faces with the extinguished eyes of defeat and disappointment. And and yet that's something that that you write about and you put your your characters um in like well in these these life situations and 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 failure and um uh and yet I don't uh, what am I trying to say here Paul um <laughs> it's incomprehensible even to me um but but yet you're also I don't think you are ever trying to make it so that you definitely think they're okay either like uh, um well listen failure is 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 really one of the most interesting subjects um writing about or thinking about success is rather dull um because we we only find out who we are when we're really tested and being tested i mean when your back is up against the wall in some way or another and when you do fail how you cope with that failure and and go on from there that's that's how you find out about yourself. If everything is going well, um, you, you really don't know. You expect it to go well. You become overly uh, confident. <laughs> yes, and maybe static in a way. Perhaps. But um, anyway, uh, I, I always have felt more kinship with people who struggle and get knocked around than the ones who somehow I managed to escape, but finally no one escapes. And life deals some rough blows to just about every human being who ever lives. That's true, no matter what you can see on the surface. That's right. That's let's, right. Paul, let's take a short break, and, and then we'll come right back. We okay. won't be gone long. Um, today on Living Writers, Paul Oster, his book, Sunset Park. Um, we'll be right, right back. Don't mean a thing. If it ain't got that swing. Do I 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 Don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is swing. Do I 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 Makes no difference if that rhythm's sweet or hot. Give that rhythm everything, everything you got. Don't mean a thing. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Paul Oster is here joining us from Brooklyn. Um, Paul, thanks for thanks again for being on the program. Well, thanks for putting the song on. And who who was singing? Jason, can you can you answer? That? That was Ella Fitzgerald. It was Ella Fitzgerald. Great. I, she she did that song many times in many different versions. It was nice to hear her laughing too in the beginning. That was, and that's, and Jason Voss is engineering for us today. So thanks, and hats off to Jason Voss. <laughs> um, he acts quickly. I mean, we mentioned it only five minutes ago, and he already dug it up. That's good work. He's he's razor sharp. <laughs> I, I I I believe it now. Um, uh, well, Paul, um, 
Th- this has been a real pleasure talking with you. And and I I wanted to um, mention that there was a, a point in Sunset Park where I had a little I, I had a little bit of a laugh. I think it was with um, your character Renzo, um, where I sort of thought, okay, I hope Paul Oster won't mind that we're doing an interview. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Well, um, Do, can you fill actually, everyone in what, what I'm talking about? Morris <laughs> Heller is his publisher, and Renzo Michelson is a novelist, and um, he doesn't do interviews, but he does one, and Morris is puzzled why, because even Morris, the publisher, thinks interviews are useless, a debased form <laughs> of literary activity, and um, well, essentially they are. Uh, although I've enjoyed talking to you today, I must say, because it's been a free-flowing conversation. Um, Not to put you on the spot, Paul. No, but... no, but you see, most of the time now, if I do interviews, it's not because I really want to, but it's because I, I feel loyalty to my publishers, and I don't want to let them down. They're trying so hard, and it's so tough out there right now for everybody that um, they seem to think things like this can help uh, push the books into people's hands a little more quickly or efficiently, and um, who am I to uh, you know argue with them about that? Yes, but it's well, but it, it is a big commitment, and I can understand why after the book is released, you won't be talking about it again for a while. I hope <laughs> or, not, or at least talking until the next book. Right, right. <laughs> but I did, I did when because I think that is a direct quote from the book, um, a debased form of <laughs> literary communication. The or interview, something like that, so. something like that. Yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, but also earlier when we first began speaking today, Paul, um, you were talking about that um, when when um, ideas and characters and pieces of the story stories are coming to you. Um, it's it's they're like little bit of their filings, some of them like things that you're seeing in the world and and pieces of and and then when you're writing them, the ideas present themselves to you. And you said sometimes even um, about the future. Yes. And I was I and so that seemed really curious to me. And I wondered was was there an element of that in Sunset Park with the pen the pen writer, uh, and please help me with the pronunciation. He won the... He, he oh, just Lu Xiaobo. Uh, yes, one yes. of the characters in the novel. Uh, I, we haven't really talked about the novel. Uh, just, to, just to say that uh, there's a group of four young people in their 20s who are squatting in a house, an abandoned house in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. It's a downtrodden neighborhood here, not far from where I live. And uh, one of them, Alice... Bergstrom is a graduate student getting her Ph.D. at Columbia. She's the one who's writing about the movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, in her dissertation. She's writing about America immediately after World War II. But she has a job, a part-time job at the Penn American Center. Uh, And Penn is an organization I've been very connected to for years. I've been vice president. I've been secretary. And... um, um, it's, you know, the only human rights organization in the world for writers. And um, the work that the Freedom to Write program does is, I think, essential. Yes. And one of the uh, cases that Penn has taken on with great vigilance is the Lu Xiaobo case. And uh, so I've, you know, I've known about this for a long time. And I, 
uh, since it was happening just at the moment when the events in my book were happening, uh, the the arrest of Lu Xiaobo in late 2008 in December, uh, it became part of the novel because that's what Alice is doing when she goes to work. She's writing letters about Lu Xiaobo to other pen centers around the world. And it's, uh, it's remarkable that he has won the Nobel Peace Prize now. I'm very glad. But at the same time, uh, the Chinese have responded so harshly to this um, with such petulance and narrow-mindedness. What, what is happening to him well, right now, Paul? I mean, they, 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 they have um, denounced the Norwegians who gave the prize. They've actually, I think, even cut off economic relations with them. Uh, and they've been uh, bad-mouthing it to the world, saying, how dare you butt into our business? And uh, his wife, who is apparently also an extraordinary human being, has been put under house arrest since the Nobel Prize. So it's not a good situation at all. And yet, having won the prize, I think they're not going to be able to do anything too drastic to him. Because the, because the world is watching. Yes, we're definitely watching. And uh, we're talking at Penn now about uh, sending a delegation over to China to try to do something more about this. I know in some ways I wish that we could make it into some sort of fantastic fiction where the delegation actually goes in and, and they extract them and yeah. bring them to well, safety. But then how, how many other people? <laughs> yes. But you see, the point of Penn is um, you keep trying. You see, you're going to fail most of the time. This gets back to what we were talking about before. You fail, you fail, you fail. But you keep pushing. And every once in a while, something good happens. And they, uh, we have gotten people out of jail. It has happened, and it does work. And the more pressure you put on, uh, the more, the more, the better the chance of succeeding is. And so you have to keep going at it and going at it. And then, finally, sometimes after years, uh, you'll get uh, the result you've been praying for. Thank you, Paul Oster. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, this has just been a wonderful hour and um anytime you feel like a radio conversation <laughs> i'm your gal okay well you sound like a great person i'd love to meet you someday oh and and meet you paul okay thanks. well come to new york and see me <laughs> thanks so much <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's time for your visit to ann arbor right it's been the 15 years so yeah, but when were you in new york last oh that you've caught me there <laughs> okay so i'll be expecting to hear from you soon <laughs> Thank you so much, okay. Paul. Take Thank care. You. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. And and thanks to you all for listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, this has been a conversation with Paul Oster. Um, a day to remember, surely for me. And thanks again to Jason Voss for engineering. Until next time. Miss Kate said, 
ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. A New York court today sentenced three of the Newburgh four who were convicted on terrorism charges to 25 years in prison. James Cromarty, Anta Williams, and David Williams were convicted last fall for conspiring to blow up synagogues and U.S. military aircraft. As part of an FBI sting operation, the men planted what they thought were explosives outside the synagogues. The case was controversial because the FBI fabricated the entire plot, leading to calls of entrapment. The FBI also used an informant planted inside a local mosque to identify and falsely recruit potential extremists. A fourth convicted man is currently undergoing psychiatric evaluation. Opponents of Ohio's controversial SB5, which curtails collective bargaining rights for public employees, turned in more than a million signatures today. Organizers hope the petition will allow Ohio voters a chance to repeal the bill in the next general election. From Columbus, FSRN's Evan Davis has more. Civic and labor activists had just over two months to gather the required 231,000 voter signatures to place the repeal referendum on the ballot. They had initially hoped to gather twice that number. Today, however, they turned in more than a million signatures, virtually assuring the measure's placement on the ballot in November. Opposition to SB5 has come from public employees, including police and firefighters. They say the legislation, if enacted, would deprive them of their collective bargaining rights and would thus lead to the erosion of wages and the elimination of benefits. Anticipating the success of the petition drive, Republican lawmakers last week attempted to have the measure split up into multiple ballot questions, but they were overruled by the Secretary of State. The option to repeal SB 5 in its entirety is expected to appear as a single yes or no question on the ballot, and a number of recent statewide polls have indicated that a majority of Ohioans favors the repeal. 